Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of Grace Point Church in Atlantic, Iowa. My name is Don McLean. I'm the senior pastor here at Grace Point. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can check us out at gracepointatlantic.com. And in the meantime, grab your Bible and check out this week's sermon. Different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Good morning. I want to start by saying a quick word about why we're in Galatians this morning in our study through Hebrews. <laughs> doesn't make sense, right? Um, Paul, Paul alluded earlier in prayer that it was a, a full week here at our church, here at Grease Point. Uh, and I know, of course, that not everyone is affected by my schedule. I, I, I'm, not, I'm not that much of a narcissist, but... Uh, I, um, I did, in the last 48 hours, I was involved in two funerals and a wedding, which sounds like a premise for a movie or something, I don't know, I don't know, a bad movie, but, um, but it was, it was a, I, I texted my sister, actually, at one point, I remember about something else, and I told her I was doing that, she said, wow, what a roller coaster of emotions, and she was right, that way it, it was, but um, it's the life of the church. But uh, when I saw that coming on my, uh, on my schedule, I... I realized there was no way I was going to be able to do a, a, a fair treatment of a new text in Hebrews. And so I decided, actually, to... I've been in ministry long enough that I, I have some filing cabinets filled with, with things I've studied in the past. And about 12 years ago, we actually studied through Galatians here in this church. So I don't know how many of you were actually here 12 years ago. If any of you remember this sermon, hats off to you, because I didn't. But um, I, I want to go back to Galatians... But I didn't just randomly, I didn't kind of do sermon roulette or something. I, I, um, I, I went to a passage that specifically treats issues we're dealing with in Hebrews. And I actually thought it would be a nice compliment. Um, in the first, so we've spent five or six weeks so far in Hebrews, and in these first two chapters we've gone through, there are some themes that are emerging, especially about what, uh, who Christ is and how God saves us. Through, through, you know, who, who he is in his nature, and then also some, some themes about who we are there for, our identity in him, that this text in Galatians really helps us. It's a nice compliment to it. Uh, some of the same things we talked about, even as recently as last week, actually. And so um, I think it's useful to see how a Pauline text, how, how Paul treats some of the same issues here in Galatians as we're dealing with in Hebrews. So a one-week detour from, uh, from Galatians this morning. Next week, we'll be back in, in Hebrews, picking up right where we left off last week. So uh, as we look at this Galatians passage, Galatians 4, let me ask for the Lord's help, and uh, we will we'll get right into it. <clears throat> uh, Father, thank you so much for bringing us here today. Thank you for um, the, the pleasure and the privilege of, of worshiping you, of fellowshipping with one another, and sitting together under the authority of your word. Uh, and, and we believe here and, and teach that it all holds together, that there's no um, 
well, con contradictions or even places of disagreement. And so it's, it's a good thing for us to see how these different things are, are un, un, unpacked, how you put them in, in different books. And so as we look this morning at this Galatians passage, I pray you will apply it to our lives, help us understand it ourselves, and, and maybe even to make some, some connections to the study we're doing together in Hebrews. Uh, but most important, Lord, would you just uh, reinforce for us what you've done, or maybe some of us are hearing it for the first time, uh, what you've done for us in Jesus and, and who we are now in Jesus, if we've put our faith in him, and, and just encourage our hearts with that, Lord. That's what we would ask for that this morning. And we ask it all in the gracious name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Advertisers. Advertisers have a lot of tools to convince us that we knew we need what they're selling. And one of those tools is the classic before and after photo. Uh, and you know what I mean. We've all seen these at different times. There'll be two pictures and some kind of a, usually a print ad, a lot of times is where you'll see it. You know, and, and there'll be two pictures side by side. And, and one picture will show uh, the person before they used the product, whatever the product is, right? Whatever it is they're selling. And, and the before picture, the colors are always kind of washed out and the picture's a little out of focus. And, and the person looks, it, it basically looks like a mugshot, right? You know, before I bought the, you know, I started driving an Acura or whatever, you know, I, I, my whole life was, was meaningless, right? It was a disaster before I found this product. Uh, and then the after picture, it'll be completely different, right? The colors will be sharp, the picture will be in focus, uh, the person will be dressed nicely, smiling, and, and, and the message is just so clear. Before, uh, things were terrible, but now that I've got this product, whatever it is I've bought, now my life is better. Before and after. The text we heard a few minutes ago and that we're going to look at together now gives us a, a before and after shot. God gives us his own before and after. Except God's not selling us something. He's offering us a gift. He's offering us the gift of salvation. Uh, we've been talking in Hebrews uh, about how the Lord redefines our identity when we trust in Jesus Christ. That was one of the most recent things we talked about. Like I said, I think it was last week's passage. Uh, and so now, because of our faith in Jesus, if we've trusted in him, uh, now we're righteous, right? He has made us righteous. He's made us holy. Uh, and and in, in some ways, best of all, he has made us members of his own family, right? He's adopted us. He's brought us into his own family. We're now sons and daughters of God, it says in chapter 3. Today's passage is about the same thing. Today's passage says the same thing. Uh, Galatians 4, 1 through 7, Paul focuses in on, on our new identity in Christ. And he does this with a little before and after shot, right? It's a, it's a before and after shot of how Jesus changes our lives. And that's really what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about how Jesus transforms our identity. That's, that's the part of Galatians that Paul is in, and it's, it's something we're talking about in Hebrews too. Jesus Christ transforms who we are. Uh, the outline's real simple this morning, just following the text, verses 1 through 3, Paul describes what it was like before we came to Christ, and then verses 4 through 7, he describes what it's like now that we have. So it's your before and it's your after. So we'll start with before and then we'll look at after. So let's, uh, let's get into this, this text, let's see what he has to say. So we begin our lives with the before, we'll start with before. Uh, we came to faith in Jesus. And, and this passage says that before we were born again, uh, we were slaves to sin. That was, that was who we were. We were slaves to sin. And, and this statement is true on, on two levels. Uh, in, in terms of the big picture, talking about uh, humanity uh, together as a group, uh, of the whole human race, it was true for the whole human race. We were all lost. We were all uh, slaves to sin. 
and, and at the same time, it's, it's an individual thing, too. It's not like um, it's true of the race, but not for me. Uh, the whole, each individual human being uh, is, is, is a slave to sin and to the power of sin if he or she has not come to Jesus Christ. That's the after part we'll get to in a few minutes. Uh, and, but really, I, I emphasize that because it, it, it exposes one of, uh, one of the saddest ironies. Uh, if you think about it, so many of the non-believers that we know, and maybe this was even us before, uh, are, are convinced that, that they're the ones who are free. I mean, you know, we're, the, we're the ones who, who are, are, are enslaved in some way, they would say, right? They're free. They're free from religion. They're free from restraint. They're free from kind of some outdated moral system. They're free from outside control, they would say. They tend to think of themselves as the ones who are free. But according to Scripture, Scripture says, no, on the contrary, anyone who does not trust in Jesus is a slave. Anyone who does not trust in Jesus is a slave to sin. And Paul shows us this with this, um, I, I, my notes say an analogy, but it's really more than an analogy. He's really describing, he's using uh, something from his own cultural world to describe a spiritual reality. And that reality is that, uh, what does it mean to say we're slaves to sin? It means we were powerless to, to save ourselves. I mean, that's really the net effect of it. We are, because of, of slave, being slaves to sin, uh, we were powerless to save ourselves before God. We were controlled, really. We were controlled by sin. We were not free. Uh, this verse, that, that's verses 1 and 2, where he, he uses this, um, this analogy. He says, uh, I mean, and he's pointing back to things he had been saying for the first three chapters, which we won't go back to now, but uh, he, he, so talking about the salvation we have and, and what it means to be saved in faith. And then he says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, even though he's the owner of everything. But he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. So to understand what he's going to talk about here, we need to know a little bit about the Roman world. In the, in the Roman world, uh, a man's oldest son would usually be his legal heir. And that was how their system would work. And, and other children would, would receive an inheritance as well. But the, the legal heir, the one who takes over and has all the authority and, and is in control of the family estate, uh, would be the oldest son. The oldest son. And obviously we're talking about people who actually had, had stuff. I mean, there were lots of people in that world who, who were literal slaves and so on. But, but he's talking, he's using the example of, of a wealthy person, and you know, we might say an upper middle class or a, an upper class person in his world. Uh, the, the, the oldest son was the heir. However, if a, a father died, so if he died while his son was still a child, the son would, would, he's still the heir, he's the oldest son, so he's the heir of everything, but he would not have access to his own inheritance until a certain age, right? He would not have access to it, and that's just how Roman law worked. Not really all that different from our own law, because we actually have, would have similar stipulations, right? You're not going to hand the, the family farm over to an eight-year-old, for example. I mean, there's going to be guardianships and stuff like that. Well, that was very similar under Roman law. Um, it was actually a two-step process in Roman law. Uh, until the boy was 14 years old, he had a guardian. He had a legal guardian who was responsible for him in every way. And then at 14, it would actually switch to a different sort of a thing uh, uh, called a curator. And the, the boy would have more autonomy, but, but the curator actually still controlled his inheritance. And so, and so that was how that worked. And that would go uh, sometimes up to 25 years old 
This other person would control his inheritance. And, and it's interesting because uh, even that was fluid. Even that would change sometimes because the actual age at which the son would receive the inheritance, full control of his own inheritance, was actually at the, at the word of the father. So the father could write in his will, uh, his testament, uh, what age. So he could make it older or he could make it younger. So it was the, the, the time that the father decided. So that's the background. That's how it worked, worked in the Roman world. In verses 1 and 2, Paul, Paul grabs that, and he imagines in his culture a, a father dies, and he has a son who's still a child, and so that son is the heir to his father's fortune. It's all legally his, but under Roman law, he has no control. He has no control over what he owns. He can't touch his own fortune. He can't go buy a new car or a new chariot or whatever. Uh, he, he is, even though it belongs to him, even though he's important to the father, it's not his. Uh, he is powerless over his own fortune. And so what does Paul conclude from that? He says he's no different than a slave. In terms of his ability to do something with, with what, is, what he has access to, uh, or what, what is his, he, he might as well be a slave in the household as far as his ability to control the family fortune. He, he has no access there. He's powerless. That's why I'm using this word. He's powerless over over what he has. And Paul says that's what it's like for us. We, we were powerless before. We were created in God's image, and I think that's why he doesn't say we, we are slaves. Um, he, he takes the, the picture of a child because we're, we're, we're special. We're important to God. God loves us. We're created in his image. But as far as our ability to break ourselves free from the power of sin, we, we might as well have been a slave. We were powerless, he says. And this is the connection he makes in verse 3, where he spells it out a little more. He says, in the same way, we also, when we were children, and, and he's using children there as, as the, before Jesus, so when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Right, so, so he says that. Uh, we were like slaves. Um, it, it, this idea of elementary principles helps us understand what he's saying here in terms of uh, its, its relationship to the law. And so the, the Greek word he uses here describes um, building blocks. It's, it's the building blocks of something. Uh, the Greeks actually used it to describe their alphabet, which is a very helpful picture. Um, you think of our, our language in English, right? In English, we have thousands and thousands of words in English, but they're all built out of 26 building blocks, right? The 26 letters of the alphabet. And, and that's, how they, that's actually originally how the word he, used, he uses here was. Um, there are, I can't remember if it's 26 or 24, some, some, the, the letters in a Greek alphabet, and they'd build a whole language. And so those letters were the building blocks. Over time, that word that was used to describe the letters came to have a more general sense of the basic principles of anything. Right? So the basic, uh, the basic ideas or the basic philosophies. And that's how he's using it here. He's using it about, so he's not using it about the letters of an alphabet. He's using it about um, God's law. So he's not talking complicated stuff. He's talking the basics, the elementary principles. It's, it's what God wants 101, right? It's the, it's the basic stuff. Do not kill, right? Do not murder. Uh, do not commit adultery. Do not covet. Do not steal. Do not worship idols, right? It's the basics, he says. We were powerless even over those things, is his point, right? And so remember, the point of the law is if you hear, God says, here you go, 10, just 10. Do these 10, and you will, it will be well with you, and, and, and you'll, you'll be holy and righteous, and you'll be acceptable. We couldn't even do those 10. And so we were, we were powerless 
uh, under those under under uh, the the power of of those elementary principles. I'll give you a picture of this. There's a a creek in California that has kind of an unusual name, uh, and it's a Spanish name, so you'll have to forgive my pronunciations. It's, it's called the Salsipuedes Salsipuedes Creek, and there's a sad story behind how that creek got its name. Um, the Salsipuedes Creek is, uh, is lined with and surrounded by uh, different pockets of, of quicksand. It's just, it's just geologically, that's what it is. So kind of, you know, the old the quicksand, you know, I don't know how many, many remember Gilligan's Island or that kind of thing, you know, you, 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 you step in the quicksand and you go down and you can't get out again. That's what quicksand is. Somebody else has to get you out or you're just going to be stuck. And uh, that's the Salsipuedes Creek. There is, um, there's quicksand all around it and in parts of it. And uh, the story goes that years ago, like centuries ago, back when California was still Spanish territory, uh, an Indian slave, uh, so this man who was a native uh, who had been enslaved by the Spanish, um, he, he tried to get across the creek. He was on some errand that he'd been sent on. He was trying to cross the creek, but he, he misjudged and he got stuck in quicksand. And so this man, he sunk up you know, to his chest or whatever, and, and he was stuck there in the quicksand for, for hours and hours. Uh, finally, a, a Spanish conquistador came by. One of, the, one of the Spanish came by, riding on his horse. I mean, he's an important-looking man. And the slave called out to him for help. Help me, get me out of here. Uh, but the, the Spaniard couldn't be bothered. And I don't know the story behind why. He, he didn't bother. He just didn't want to take the time to save this man, or maybe he just didn't value him. And so he called out to the man, Sal si puedes. Sal si puedes. In Spanish, it means get out if you can. Get out if you can. He wouldn't help the man. If you need, you get out. You're, if you're stuck, well, help yourself. That's what it was like for us, Paul says. Before Jesus, we were trapped, and we weren't going to be able to help ourselves. We were powerless. We couldn't break free from the power of sin. We were slaves. That's verses 1, 2, and 3. Then Jesus came along. Now, now comes Jesus, and this is the part that changes it. This is the part that changes everything. Uh, he comes and he transforms our identity. That's the after part of the text. After we put our faith in Jesus, Paul says we are sons and daughters of God. So before we were slaves, now we're God's own children. Again, something we've been talking about a lot in the, first, in the early chapters of Hebrews. Uh, he makes this shift in uh, verses 4 and 5. So let me read those, those two for now. He says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So according to verses 4 and 5, I'm going to walk us through this. According to 4 and 5, God did just the right thing through just the right person at just the right time. And that's how he set us free. So that's how he's going to change our identity from slave to son uh, to, to children. Uh, he does just the right thing to, through just the right person at just the right time. Let me, let me walk through each one of those in turn. Uh, first, he, he, he takes them in reverse order of what I just said. He starts with the right time. When the fullness of time had come. Verse 4, uh, right? When the fullness of time had come. Uh, he's picking up on, on verse 2, that analogy. So why is he talking about fullness of time? Well, he's picking up under uh, this idea of time set by the Father. 
time set by the father remember the father decides the timing kind of the standard was 25 that's when a lot of sons would would get, be given but maybe a father says you know what 20 my son's pretty responsible he can have the fortune at 20 or or maybe a father says no not that guy 30 you know he's gonna have to wait till he's 30 uh the, the father would set the time and paul picks up on this here it's it's the father decides the timing he says uh, he's talking now about the heavenly father you might remember hebrews actually starts with a similar idea it's a similar idea in Hebrews, this idea that God has a perfect time, that he's, it, it, the timing in which he does things. It's the beginning of the book. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. So for centuries, God was speaking through the prophets. We call it the Old Testament. But in these last days, the author says, he has spoken to us by his son. There's this sense in Hebrews that, that the Father uh, has, has a perfect time that he's working and that he sent Jesus at just that right time. Uh, there are lots of practical reasons that that would be true. If you think about the first century world into which Jesus was born uh, and, and into which the gospel goes forth, uh, there are lots of reasons it was a, a good time for Christianity to be born. Uh, there was a stable government. You know, a, you can, there are a lot of bad things you can say about the Roman government, but they did bring peace and uh, it was peace at the end of their sword but it was it was a peace, peaceful stable government through that entire mediterranean world uh, large numbers of people were concentrated in cities which doesn't sound like a great way to live maybe but um, it makes evangelism easier and and that was certainly the case if you read through acts paul and the other apostles would go from city to city and the gospel spread that way very quickly um, there was good road system for travel. Uh, there was even a common language, right? And that wasn't, that's so often not true in so much of world history. But in that part of the world, uh, in that, again, that whole Mediterranean region, uh, everybody spoke Greek. And they'd also have their own language. You know, if you were a Parthian or a Jew or an Egyptian, you had your own language, but you also had to learn Greek if you were going to do business in, in the Roman Empire kind of like the way you know english is sort of like that in in the last century um so lot, almost everybody spoke greek and so you even had a common language for the gospel to go out in for for people to hear and so there's there's you can see in a practical way how it's just the right time but really i don't know if paul's thinking about that stuff so much mostly he seems to be saying it's the right time because god decides that's the right time uh, I, you know it's this idea of completeness or perfection um god decided this was it I've, I've got them all ready. I've got all my pieces in place. And now's the time. Now's the time to send my son. That brings us to the right person. Again, it's still in verse 4. Uh, God, sent forth, uh, the, the, God sent forth his son. His son, born of a woman. Born under the law. It's Jesus. Jesus is the right person. And he's the only person. It's not like God had, you know, all those you know, six or eight that he could have done, but he decided to go with Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, Paul's point and the scripture's point is that only Jesus could rescue us. Only Jesus can solve this problem we have in, from verses one through three that we're enslaved to sin. Um, Paul alludes to why this is true. He, he doesn't develop it in the seven verses we're looking at today, but he actually references why only Jesus is, is in the position to save us. And, and it's things we've been talking about in Hebrews. So again, it's a nice compliment to what we've been studying. Um, why, why is Jesus uniquely qualified to save us? Well, on the one hand, Jesus is God. Right? Paul says that. God sent forth his son. Right? We're not talking about any ordinary Jew or ordinary human. We're talking about God's son. So Jesus is, Jesus is God. 
A big point in the first chapter of, of Hebrews. Uh, but at the same time, Jesus is also a, a man. Right? And you see that. You know, it's actually all through chapter 2 in Hebrews. Or, and so verse 14, Hebrews 2.14, he himself partook of the same things, uh, the same flesh and blood experience that you and I have. He was made like us. Or as Paul says here, he was born of a woman, born under the law. Right? And so he's fully God, the son of god but he's also fully human he's born of a woman born under the law just like we were so so we're we're slaves to sin because of the 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 law over us and and our our fallen nature again the problem isn't the law we had to talk about this last week the problem isn't the law the law is good but we're fallen we're flawed because of you know call it original sin uh, and so uh, and so we can't keep the law so Jesus is born to a woman, fully man, also under the law because he's fully, fully man, but he doesn't have that, that sin. He doesn't have that disobedience to the Father. And so he is therefore now uniquely qualified. And so you put those two together, his humanity and his, his deity, he and he alone can rescue us. And so at just the right time, God sent just the right person. And because he's the right person, he's able to do just the right thing. He's able to do just what we needed him to do for us so that we could be saved. And, and Paul describes this with the word redeem. He says in verse 5, God sent his son to redeem, to redeem those who were slaves under the law. He sent his son to redeem those who were slaves. The word redeem, the word that's used here, means to buy something. It's a word that means to buy. And you could use to buy anything. You can buy anything, but it was often used uh, especially in scripture, uh, in, in the context of, rid, of buying a slave's freedom. So you could use it to talk about something else, but, but if you were going to set a, a slave free, if you were going to purchase a slave's freedom, this is the Greek word you would use to describe that, that, that purchase, redemption. You would redeem that slave. Paul says that's what Jesus did for us. He redeemed the slaves. He redeemed us with his. What was that? He doesn't talk about it in these verses. But what's the what's the price he paid? It's the price of his own blood. With his own blood, we're in we're in Lent now, right? We're going to start thinking that way more and more, just in, in our own reading and so on. Uh, that's how he did it. With his own blood, he he bought us out of our slavery by redeeming us from the law. And again, only he was able to do it. Only he was in the position to do it. And so this right here, this little uh, formulation or syllogism or whatever it is, uh, it, it really is a, a key summary of the gospel, right? At, at just the right time, God sent just the right person to do just the right thing, to redeem us so that we could be saved and set free from that slavery. Because he did all that for us, because he did that, we're new people, our identity is transformed in Jesus Christ. Again, this a theme we've been talking about over in Hebrews. Our redemption in Christ changes us. It changes us, not just our behavior. It actually changes something deeper. It changes who we are. And then the behavior changes as a result of, of the interior, of, 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 of that change of identity. And there are two marvelous changes that are in this text. I'm sure there's others we could talk about, but we'll highlight these two. So we'll talk about uh, two ways uh, that we, two things that we are now. And um, they're verses six and seven. So he says, and because you are sons, uh, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. <clears throat> so two key changes he makes to our identity. The first is that we are now adopted as children. 
We are adopted by God as children. Uh, and and, and what he, we become children, and what that means is we become children in the fullest and richest way possible. We are full children. This is why Paul says sons. So you see it in the text. He uses the word sons here. But when he says sons, he's not excluding women. Uh, in fact, he's, he's actually including women on the same level as men. And, and this takes a little bit of explaining to understand this. Sometimes people will read a verse like that and go, oh, see, the Bible's, the Bible's sexist. Um, it's actually the opposite of sexist because he says sons. All right, so let me explain what I mean by this, um, and, which is why I'm using children, adopted as children, because to you and me, it's the same. Um, in the first century Roman world, so the, the world where Paul lives and where all of his readers live, sons had more rights than daughters. It's just straight up true. It's just straight true. Uh, women couldn't hold, uh, uh, except, except with rare uh, exceptions, women couldn't own property, for example. Uh, and, and so um, sons just straight up had more rights than daughters. Um, we're all very glad, right? All the daughters in the room are like, yay, I'm so glad it doesn't work that way anymore. Um, and so are all us fathers who are glad with daughters who are so glad it doesn't work this anyway. I would hate to have to think separately that way about my, my sons and my daughters. But that's how it was, uh, my daughter. That's how it was in, um, in Paul's world. And so that's what he's working with. So, so because that's the reality, because daughters have lower status rights than sons in that world, if Paul had written, you are now sons and daughters, that would actually be a weaker statement. It would actually be a weaker statement to say that. Instead, he says, you are all sons. So writing to men and women, writing to brothers and sisters in Christ, because he's writing to the whole church. You see that there in Galatians. He didn't put the men in one room and the women in the other and write a different letter for the women. He's writing to the whole church, men and women alike, boys and girls, all of us. And he says, God has made you all sons. Status-wise, we're all sons. That is, God gives all believers, male and female alike, the very best blessings, the highest blessings. There's no caste system in Christianity. There's no more spiritual primogeniture where the firstborn gets all the best and the others only get a half share. Nothing. No, we are all equally partaking in the best share of what the Father has to offer. That, that's, that's that good news there, right? So we're all, uh, we're all his children equally in his sight with the very best blessings that he has. We're adopted as sons. And that's the other word. How does he do it? He does it through adoption. And Paul's very specific on this. He uses the word for adoption. Uh, in Christ, God the Father has adopted us as his own children. Yeah, you see it in verse 5. We receive adoption as sons. And the key thing to understand about adoption, and this is how it worked in the Roman world, it actually pretty much works in the same way under our own law. Uh, and in our own system, uh, is that when a, a, a Roman citizen adopted someone as his son, um, that he was making that person a true child, a true child of the adopting parents. That's, that's how it worked in, in Roman law as well as our own. And so when a couple adopts a child, that child is, is fully theirs in every way. You don't make distinctions with the other children legally, ethically, morally, spiritually, in every way, uh, that child is, is their son or daughter with all the privileges and responsibilities thereof. And, and, and that's, what Paul, that's how it worked in their world too. Uh, the, the, so, so it's not a lesser status when he talks about adopting. We should never understand it that way. Uh, and, and one of the privileges, the one he's going to focus on here in verse 6, is this idea of a close relationship. 
You actually see the fullness of the sense of adoption in, in where he goes with it. Right? You, because you are sons, uh, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts. And what does that spirit do? What, what can we do now as the spirit abides in us? We can cry out, Abba, Father. Abba, Father, it says. Uh, many of you know this, Abba. If you don't, Abba is, uh, actually, it's not a Greek word. It's an Aramaic word, which is like Hebrew. It's an Aramaic word that, it, that little children would use to talk about their father, to address. So it would be analogous to English, like Dada or Papa or Daddy, so, uh, a kind of a, a more intimate term of affection between a father and, and his children. And so that's the, Paul, Paul grabs that word, and this isn't the only passage where he does it, where he grabs that word and he says, that's the relationship you now have uh, with, with your Father in heaven because of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And he has made you a, a close family. He's brought us into this close family relationship. Again, back to Hebrews. We've been talking about that in chapter 2, and now as we get into chapter 3, we're his children, we're members of this family. One of my best friends from childhood was, was adopted, and, uh, and, he, and he knew it all along. Like it, back, sometimes back in the older days, people used to kind of keep it, but they didn't keep it from him. So he knew from early on that, that he was adopted, and um, he was very comfortable with it. And so he would talk to his friends about him. He wasn't like talking about it all the time or something, but, but it was just a natural part of his life. And uh, one time I remember uh, we were it was like middle school age, and you know, a bunch of you know, boys sitting around the lunch table, and... Uh, one, of, one of the other guys asked him uh, if he ever wanted to know who his real mom was. Right? Don't you want to know who your real mother is, uh, the guy asked. And, and I remember watching my friend. We were good friends, and this story just stuck him, you know, or this, this experience just, just stuck with me all these years. I remember kind of looking at him, and uh, it was just, he was just puzzled. He didn't get angry. He really wasn't the kind of guy to get angry. He was a pretty easygoing guy. He, he, he was just puzzled by what, what my, my real mother what do, you, what do you mean, my real mother? My real mother kissed me goodbye this morning and put me on the bus. My real mother will be waiting for me when I get home at the end of the day. There was no question in his mind who his, who his real mother was, right? So that, that sense of closeness, he, he knew. It was the same way with his dad. He, he, they'd adopted him, and he knew he had that kind of relationship with them. That's what this is saying about us and the Father. We're his children. He's our Father. And so we can trust him. And all those things you would think about, and trust, trusting him to provide for us, to take care for us, to take care of us, to love us, to, to pick us up when we fall, right? Not yelling and scolding us, but 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 helping us up again. Right? All of those those ways that a, that a a father or a mother would would interact with with his dearly loved child. Uh, that's how how God treats us, and how he he that's, that's how he acts with us. That's how he is with us. So we are now adopted as his children because of what God has done for us in Christ. The other way Jesus changes our identity in this text is that we are therefore, flows right out of the first one, we are therefore appointed as his heirs. So we're adopted as children and we're appointed as heirs. We have access to the riches of God's kingdom. And, and you know, back to this idea of, of the, the sonship, not having access to the inheritance. Well, we do. We do, he says. God adopts us and appoints us as his heirs. Uh, sometimes um, in the summer, I will, uh, I'll find an earthworm on the, on the backyard, in the backyard at our house. We have a little patio right out the back door, and uh, I don't know how they get up there, but somehow these worms, big juicy worms, get up there on the, uh, on the, patio, uh, on the patio after the rain. And uh, I like to rescue them. Uh, I, I like to rescue the earthworms. Uh, we have a little garden plot, 
And, you know, I grew up, we always had a garden plot. My father would always tell me how, how good the worms were for the soil. So I'll, I'll rescue that worm, scoop it up, bring it over to the garden, put it in there. And I figure win-win, right? It's good for the worm. It's good for my garden. Put the worm in the garden. I've rescued the worm, right? I take care of the worm. I save the worm so the birds don't eat it. I do not, however, put it in my will, right? You don't write it. I leave everything to Hannah, Josh, Nate, and the earthworm that I rescued on July 22nd. It, it would be an absurd thing to do. But if you think about it, it's kind of like what God did with us. It's kind of what he did with us. He, he could have, and I don't mean to say we're earthworms, I don't, we're, we're created in the image of God, but my point is he could have stopped. And I think it's Paul's point too. He could have stopped at redemption. He could have stopped at rescue, right? He could have stopped at scooping us up and putting us in the garden. And we would have said, thank you. This is much better over here in the soil than it is out there on the patio. And that would have been enough, right? It would have been, it would have been more than enough, far more than we deserved. But instead, he then brought us into the family and wrote us into the will. That's what Paul's saying here. And it's, again, it's right there in verse 7. And so you're no longer a slave, which we heard we were back in verses 1, 2, and 3. You're no longer a slave, but now you're a son, Remember, that's child in the sense we understand it. It's a son and daughter you're with the fullest rights. Now you're a son and an heir, an heir through God. Heirs receive an inheritance. What's the inheritance he's talking about? He doesn't develop it in this passage, but we'll talk about it for just a second here and then close it up. The largest portion of our inheritance is, does lie in the future, right? So as we think about what, what does a Christian stand to inherit from God, um, the, 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 that future part is, is the eternal kingdom. And that really is how Scripture talks. Uh, I think, for example, of uh, like Matthew 25. Uh, it's the, it comes from the last sermon Jesus preaches in, in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew 25, verse 34, he's talking about Judgment Day, and he says, uh, he's actually telling a, this sort of semi-parable, he says, the king will say to those on his right on Judgment Day, because anyway, he separates the sheep from the goats, remember, and, and he'll say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, Take your inheritance. Take your inheritance. How Jesus talks about it. Take your inheritance, which is the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Uh, an earthly inheritance typically might include some cash. Right? Maybe there's a house. Uh, maybe some, some stocks or a car or something like that. We get a kingdom. We get a kingdom, Jesus says. And not just any kingdom. It's, his, it's God's kingdom. He, well, he, we, we enter into and share in his eternal kingdom. So there's definitely this future aspect to it. But then if you look at it scripturally, there's also very much a sense in which we begin to enjoy the, the benefits of this inheritance even now. Right? And, so, and the scripture will talk this way. And so, so many of the things we talk about as being part of the Christian life, the, the many benefits, that close relationship that we get with our creator. I don't, we, we t if you grow up a Christian, you don't appreciate this. We don't appreciate uh, how, how special that is, that our God wants to know us personally. He's not just looking, you know, if you compare, for example, to how Muslims look at Allah or, or uh, a, an impersonal force that you'll get in a lot of Eastern mysticism sort of things. Um, our God loves us personally. The true God loves his people personally. And so we have that close relationship. Uh, we have forgiveness from our sins. We have freedom from shame, freedom from, uh, from guilt. Another part of the inheritance, and it's, it's actually probably the one that's most in this text, is that freedom from the power over sin. We used to be slaves to sin. We used to be powerless, but now we're not. 
And, and it's not just magic. We've got we've to work it. We've got to you know, be in Scripture, be in prayer, enter in accountability, worship together, all those things we do that are part of discipleship. But as we pursue the Lord, we are set free from that stuff. We're set free from uh, that slavery to sin that used to characterize our life before we knew him. And, and that's actually part of the inheritance too. That's part of what we receive as, as his sons and his daughters. And so uh, we are adopted as his children and we're appointed as heirs, an inheritance we begin to share in now and that we look forward to the fullness of it in years to come. Many years ago, there was a, a famous um, escape artist. That really was what he was, named Harry Houdini. A lot of people will recognize the name Harry Houdini from, from American history. Uh, Houdini would basically travel around, uh, and he was like a performer, um, and he would travel around escaping, right? So he would, they would chain him up and put him in a box, and he would escape somehow. And, and it was just all the rage. He was just very popular kind of uh, entertainment in the pre-internet age. And uh, he was very cocky. He was a kind of very confident guy. And as part of his show, every time he would come to a new community, he would issue a challenge. And the challenge was actually to the local police force. So he'd come to a town, maybe like a town like ours, and he would put out a, a challenge and he'd say, I can escape from your jail. Lock me up, put me in there, I will show you that I can escape from your, from your, from your, your, your best cell, your most secure cell, I'll get out. And a lot of times they, they would just ignore him and they'd know he's you know, not worth messing with it. But, but every once in a while, one of the local police forces would take him up on it. And, uh, but he'd always escape. And, you know, and that's just how he built his reputation. And, uh, but, but then one time, so one time he came to a community, he issued his standard challenge, they took him up on it, and something went wrong. Something went wrong for poor Harry. Uh, they, they escorted him into the cell, and they, the officer uh, put him in there and, and closed the door. You know, boom, you can hear the door clang shut. And uh, he was left there by himself. And, and one of his tricks is he would conceal things. I was kind of cheated a little bit, it seems to me. But he would uh, a lot of times conceal a piece of metal in his belt. And so he, he went to this secret pocket in his belt and he removed the piece of metal that he would use to pick the lock. And he set about to begin to pick the lock on this jail cell. And right away he knew something was off. Something was wrong because it, it, it wasn't the way it's supposed to be. And so he started trying to pick this lock. And he could tell, this is, I've never picked a lock like this. I've never had to deal with a lock like this. And, and, and he began to worry a little bit. And, uh, but he figured he'd get it. And so he starts working on this thing. Half an hour passes. He's not getting anywhere. <laughs> he can't get it open. Uh, an hour passes. Now he's worried. Right? I mean, because again, if, if you're an escape artist who can't escape, uh, the, the show's over, right? There's not much of a show if, if they can keep him in. And so he's starting to get kind of worried. He's worried, you know. And so he keeps at it two hours. He's been in there two hours trying to figure this thing out. What am I doing wrong? I don't know how to pick a lock, so I don't know which motions to make. <laughs> but he's trying for almost two hours. Finally, he's just, oh, I, I can't do it. And, and kind of in this uh, expression of despair, he's like, ugh. And he leans against the door, and it swings open. <laughs> Whether on purpose or, or, or an accident, the officer uh, forgot to lock or didn't lock the door. And that's why it was all so different. He was trying to pick a lock that was already open. And, and the door just swung open and out he walked. Too many of us, too many Christians live like that. We, we live as if the door is still locked, right? We really do. We, we, we live as if we're still in verses 1, 2, and 3, as if we're still slaves to sin, when the reality is we're, our reality is verses 4, 5, 6, and 7. We're sons and daughters of the Lord. We're sons and daughters. We're members of his family. And so we don't have to live with those chains. 
We don't have to live that way anymore. Because here's the thing, these, these changes we talk about, whether it's Hebrews or Galatians or wherever, it's not a theological fiction, right? It's not just kind of like a, a rubric we use to talk about, you know, high ideas or something. The Bible presents these things as, as the reality. We are no longer slaves to sin. We are now sons and daughters of God. Would you pray with me, please? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for that truth. Thank you that we are no longer slaves to sin and all that goes with it. We're, not long, we're no longer slaves to fear. We're no longer slaves to shame. We're no longer slaves to any of it. And uh, you are, are so good to us, so kind, so merciful, and we thank you for that. I pray for myself and everyone who hears these words um, that you would help us to, to walk in that freedom. If there's anyone hearing these words who has not accepted Jesus and is, is still living, verses 1, 2, and 3 is still the reality, I pray you would um, show them that, help them see that about themselves, Lord, and come talk to me or to someone else, maybe the person who came with them today, so that they can... They can um, experience and receive this gift that you offer to us. Uh, but for those of us who have done that, Lord, and, and have already um, received that transformation, help us now to walk in the truth. That's so much of these New Testament letters is focused on that. And we would ask that you, by your Spirit working in us, would help us to embrace and receive and, uh, and, and live out by faith the reality that we see here in Scripture. We ask this in the great and awesome name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.